This is Danny from Output 111. We're releasing a batch of Cold Waves episodes in advance of our upcoming album. This episode features the song Impossible Sweat Machine and music from our friend Animal Party. Following the music, we have an interview with Young Chomsky, producer of the True Anon podcast. Hope you enjoy.
Hey, Young Chomsky, what do you think? Hey, how's it going? Thanks for having me. So, yeah, I mean, I got a real spooky vibe from this, I guess, which I thought was neat. I mean, to me, not having any context, this kind of felt like uh, like a soundtrack piece. Um, I could, I, it would kind of put me in a in a space of like, a, I don't know, I guess like, like a horror film or, or something like that. You know, it had kind of uh, oppressive vibes. I thought the, the, the vocal processing was neat. Um, and the what was going on in the bass, those to me I thought were pretty effective in evoking that kind of like uneasiness. I guess what kind of struck me, and I, I listened to this on my like, not my, just like a consumer speaker, not like my studio speakers, but um, I guess from like a constructive standpoint, it felt like there was some frequency kind of fighting going on between different tracks, which is like super common and is something I, I struggle with to when I'm making a kind of denser production. So, you know, if I were kind of working with this, I'd maybe try to be doing some subtractive EQ um, to, to kind of carve out some space for the different tracks. So like I, I kind of wanted the bass to have more presence because um, I thought there was cool stuff going on there, but it felt like it was maybe getting a little, little bit lost, which is tough. Um, that's that's the big challenge I think with any any production where you have a whole bunch of elements that are potentially taking up a lot of space in the spectrum. Um, yeah, I mean those were kind of like my my high level 
impressions. Like I, I had no idea what to expect when I hit play on this, but um, I'm happy to give you zero context going in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean it was yeah. it was vibey. I mean it definitely had like it was it was very dissonant and kind of unpredictable, and yeah, it put me in a real space of kind of like dread. Um, so yeah, to me it, it it seemed like it could be effective as um, in that it, it, like a soundtrack to something something spooky or chilling. When you when you talked about um, just the sort of frequency of fighting, were you referring specifically to like like throughout, or was it the moments where the songs kept cutting in and out, like there was a intentional hard panning tremolo on one uh-huh. section? Yeah, I mean, I guess I was just hearing just the the individual elements, you know ideally right everything's going to pop and kind of live in its own its own space and then i think something that happens a lot in my recordings and other recordings i've heard that are kind of like home productions or whatever is um things are kind of stepping on each other frequency wise um which is it's not something that you you think about when you're listening to a a production but yeah i find that that's one of the most kind of subtle arts of, of mixing right is like everything kind of lives in its own space so it kind of stands out which is tough because then when you're doing that kind of thing it often means cutting out a lot of frequencies that you like to hear when you're listening to something solo like a guitar played solo right just a guitar track has a lot of different frequencies in it a lot there's bass and there's mids and there's everything and you listen to that guitar by itself and you want to hear all that stuff but if you put that guitar in a mix with drums and bass and vocals all of a sudden that stuff is it's all it's stepping all over everything else so like what you might end up having in my experience in a, in a mix is a guitar that's like super i mean if you really listen to the guitar sometimes in like a pop track um you're hardly hearing anything on like an acoustic guitar except for like the high end you know it's like almost sounds like a shaker um but it but that's how you get it to fit into the mix so if you listen to that solo it's like this sounds like shit this is like super tinny but in the context of the mix, it's like, oh, this sits just right. So um, I don't know, you know, maybe I'm explaining really basic stuff for your listeners, but that is something that I think takes a long time to get used to as as a recording person, as a mixing artist. Well, no, I think it it kind of touches on the intention of this piece, like mm-hmm. um like our song in there is the you know heavy punk one that mm. uh, you know is full of screaming and 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 rhythmic guitar and. When I was listening to it and mixing it with the um, the Animal Party piece, that's the more uh, that was an experiment that um, Sinead from Animal Party wrote as mm-hmm. like trying to impose harp over you know like post dubstep beats and jazz chords without the harp being ethereal and like pretty. Yeah, so it was more of like a piece that she worked on just as a you know like an artistic challenge. Um, I kind of got in the mind of like creative frustration, like how do I take the you know the undirected anger of the main song mm-hmm. and pen it to something a bit more abstract mm-hmm. like i was hearing that in the words and that was th- sending it through uh overblown reverbs and hard hard trim that i mentioned earlier and yeah um high frequency amp simulators like through a whole track to get that sort of hissy um you know like a shitty recording sound in there but yeah, like I thought, I thought it was like I actually thought it was really cool. That you you pointed to um, you know the mixing approach to it. Like what you took out of it is you know a big part of what you do all the time. Like 
how do you find those frequencies and you know wrestle with your desire to keep stuff that you really like versus what doesn't sound like shit for sure and i mean both in the sense of i guess mixing like eqing individual tracks but also in the sense of arrangement right like mm -hmm. i one of my flaws in terms of my instincts is i tend to like be maximalist where i'm i always want to add stuff right and that's something i have i've had to learn to fight against because oftentimes like you know again kind of fundamentals of recording right you only have so much space to work with so to speak in terms of headroom for volume and in terms of frequency you know it's finite um so as you the more stuff you add the smaller each individual element is right like you want a guitar to sound huge the hugest a guitar can sound is when there's nothing else happening but guitar. Then the guitar can take up all the space. But if you have, all of a sudden, you got drums, vocals, and bass in there with the guitar, that guitar's got to get smaller. Like, you cannot just keep adding to a recording because you can only get as loud as zero decibels full scale, and you can only, you know, everything's in the same frequency space. It just starts to sound indistinct and mushy. So... I love, you know, quote unquote, like wall of sound, like Phil Spector and these kind of Baroque productions. And I'm always thinking about layering and layering. And it, it's you have to be really subtle and skillful to um, to do that stuff and to add. So, yeah, I've I've tried to teach myself and train myself out of some of those instincts and think, OK, how can you strip something back? But then. I think that it's kind of like to make an analogy to food, I guess. It's like you have to have really good ingredients when you start making it really minimalist. Like the guitar has got to sound great if you're going to hear just the guitar, right? So, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know. These are just, I think, kind of big philosophical considerations for people uh, arranging and producing and recording music. Like you strike me as someone who has to handle that pretty quickly on a twice a week. Like you need to not only handle the the eq of your like any subjects that are being interviewed you know the host of the show and your music sure like how do you how do you get like a workaround for that yeah well so i mean one thing i mean we've been doing true and on for three and a half years now and mm -hmm. the way the recording process has evolved and i think the way we tend to do it now is the most ideal for me and that uh, I mean, we started out, we were all in the same, it was me and Liz and Brace, the hosts. Uh, we were in my apartment in San Francisco, but it was a tiny little, obviously untreated room. It was like my studio apartment. And I was using these Audio-Technica um, condenser mics, which are like, okay, um, you know, they do the job. And then that was it for a while. Then COVID happened and we were doing everything remotely. Everybody was in their own room. And so that presented... An advantage in that when everybody is in a totally separate space, you get fully isolated tracks from everyone, which is great because I do a lot of editing. But, you know, then everybody is in a different room and uh, their room doesn't sound great. And then it's like I'm not physically present to be setting their levels, to be positioning the mic, stuff like that. Uh, so now we're all in the same place again and we actually have a, a, a dedicated space to record. And it's like semi-treated i mean it's just like a room that has foam up on all the walls but that kind of goes a long way actually compared to recording in an apartment where it's a lot of hard surfaces and we've also gotten new mics uh and we use sm7s um which i think are you know it's a pretty standard sound and and fairly flattering it's not like i auditioned like 50 different mics to see what is the best on liz's voice but sm7 works well and we use uh universal audio preamp and plugins which are nice to work with and that way that that's big for me because i can compress 
the vocals on the way in. Um, otherwise, I have to I'd have to record. I, they're very dynamic. Their speech is very dynamic, um, which took me a long time to get used to because you set the level, you do a sound check, and they're like, "Okay, this is my speaking voice." But then sometimes they will literally shout, um, and I'm like, "No, that's it's totally clipped now." But if I have a Universal Audio lets you um, treat it like you're using outboard gear. You can compress it at recording time. So I always run with a compressor on um, and and get some pretty deep compression sometimes because, like I said, they they will literally go from like kind of whispering, like as a joke, sometimes get real, like do a voice of the whispering to like shouting. So that is challenging. I mean, it's like recording, I don't know, like a metal vocalist or something. Uh, so that's a big challenge. But then, yeah, I mean, bottom line is I have a, I have templates. I have like that signal chain is saved. I just pull up the, the same chain I used in the last episode and I listen to it and I make a couple tweaks. You know, people's voices are different from day to day or the performance is a little bit different. So yeah, the room uh, is consistent now and that's great. The microphones and the preamp are good and I can compress it on the way in. Um, and the the challenge then is when we have a guest uh, who is usually remote. I mean, if the guest is there in the room, no big deal. Uh, although now, of course, it's better for the performers to be in the same room together. It's easier for them to play off each other. But for me, now that presents a problem when I'm trying to edit things because um, I don't have fully isolated tracks, right? They bleed into each other. So if I want to like cut something one person said I need to cut the other person too or you know that can be a little more difficult but yeah and then when we have a guest I have to be a little bit forgiving on that stuff and I think listeners are too like you don't expect the guest to have the audio quality that the hosts have necessarily what I found is that honestly like built-in mics in like MacBooks for instance are perfectly fine um, I, I actually prefer I will say this, I prefer the built-in mic on a MacBook for recording speech to a lot of those like USB mics that people use. I think those sound so bad. Uh, and I think people have the idea that they're good because they, it, that looks like a real microphone, but I think they just sound like garbage. They, they pick up so much room sound. A lot of them have a selector for cardioid versus omni and I learned that because I was like, why does this sound so shitty? And I was like, oh, you had it in Omni mode. So it's just like picking up the entire room. But even in cardioid, like it really doesn't seem to reject much sound. So you just get really echoey sound. And it's like this really kind of ugly high mid bump is what it sounds like. So I, I don't like those at all. But better than, you know, sometimes people want to use the built-in mic on their like earbuds. And it's like rubbing against their shirt collar. And it's just, that doesn't work at all. So we've had to tell people we can't do that. Um, but as long as somebody's wearing headphones, which most people are willing to do, but I, that's my that's my stipulate. Like you have to wear headphones. We had one guest who I won't name who is great otherwise, but just steadfastly refused to wear headphones. And he was just shouting at the computer from like across the room. And then anytime we spoke, you know, that would come back to us through his speakers. And so that made things really difficult. But um, that sounds like a fucking nightmare. Man. I, it wasn't it wasn't fun. But yeah, I mean, it's it's we, we mostly have things pretty consistent now. And then as far as like the music goes, yeah, that's been a fun. I mean, I wasn't doing that when we first launched the podcast. But at a certain point, I kind of decide. And there have been a few times nobody ever seems to like really pay attention or notice, but there have been a few times where I kind of pulled back from doing, um, recording new music for each episode because I was really 
involved in for instance when we were, we went on tour i had to like prepare a live set and we did this project late last year called the game which involved a really extensive amount of original music of like scoring versus just the kind of interstitial music that i usually do so i kind of took a hiatus from doing new music for the regular episodes while i was working on that stuff but typically each episode i record a little um some little pieces as segues between sections and i've evolved somewhat in how i do that in terms of what my workflow is or what tools I use. But generally, I mean, we record the episode, I edit the episode, and I mark a bunch of places where I'm going to do a little musical transition. And then when the whole thing's done, I just sit down. And it was, it used to be that I would record just uh, one piece, like one instrumental piece with a few different sections, and it would be like two minutes long. And I would take little bits of that and insert it. Lately, since actually we did the game where I kind of changed up how I work, I've been doing it a little differently. This is only just for a couple of episodes, but I I do just like a little musical phrase, kind of self-contained, and I I record it right in the same session, as opposed to just kind of independently making a piece and then just kind of taking a chunk of it and slotting it in. I'm just like, all right, this segue is going to have these four or eight bars right here. Uh, so each each one has a kind of beginning and end. But um, yeah, I mean, it's been a good, that stuff has been a good challenge for me as a musician, being able to just like turn something around really quickly. And one of my other kind of um, unproductive instincts is like perfectionism, where I will kind of labor over something forever and it'll never be finished. And this just makes that impossible, which is good. Because uh, it's like, no, the episode's got to come out tomorrow. So you just got to do the first thing that comes to mind and call it finished. Right. So that, that's been good for me artistically. Before you even transitioned into electronic music, you were doing more, um, would you say, indie music? Yeah. Singer song, like band stuff? Singer song? Yeah. Singer? I mean, I actually, I picked up, the guitar was my first instrument, which is funny because I like, hardly ever touch the guitar anymore which is a shame i i should i like guitar but i I picked up a guitar when i was a teenager i got really into writing songs i guess like when i was in college and i ended up studying music composition and when i was in college i got into indie rock and indie pop and the stuff that was happening in like the 2000s and then i've always been into 60s baroque pop like the zombies and the kinks and the beach boys and all that stuff and learning about orchestration um, was really cool and then when i was in school i was able to use the studio on campus and get music students to like play stuff uh, and write these very lush compositions and then I would, yeah, for my songs where I sang and played guitar. And then the years after that, I tried to keep doing that stuff. But it's harder when you're not a college student and you have to like rent a rehearsal space and find people on Craigslist and like pay them. <laughs> uh, and I did that for a while and I made a few records. But yeah, eventually it just got too difficult to do. It was too unwieldy. And yeah, that's kind of how I came to electronic music, which is funny because it's not, I wasn't really listening to it before I didn't I had never listened to like Kraftwerk or Brian Eno or a lot of the stuff that I came to love after but I was just like there's got to be a better way to do this there's got to be a way that I can make really lush complicated music I mean I guess I was kind of doing that stuff in a way because when I discovered recording I, I would record in my dorm room and I would just multi-track 
vocals and guitars. Um, and that was my way of like doing these really layered recordings without having to have a whole bunch of musicians. Uh, but then I discovered synthesizers and drum machines and that whole world. And then I started listening to that kind of music. And um, then I started buying hardware synthesizers, which I've gone back and forth, like I said, a, about how I like what my workflow is. But I really like hardware for the way that it forces me to work. Uh, again, it's kind of contrary to that analysis paralysis or whatever that can happen when you're working in a computer where it's like infinite possibility. You can have as many tracks as you want. You know, th these are my synthesizers that you see behind me and I can have as many tracks as these. That provides a, a limitation, which I find um, helpful creatively. But uh, yeah, that's kind of been my journey from uh, in terms of how I approach music. But yes, I did start as a singer-songwriter, guitar, indie, rock guy. When you made that transition, or I guess now compared to when you made that transition, do you find that artistic itch is being scratched or it's just like growing out of something and discovering something new? Um, well, I mean, I do. I, I think the journey has been towards um, efficiency and immediacy, right? Like my goal is always, and, and I've definitely gotten to this point through different means, but the ideal for me is being able to sit down and bang out a track that I'm happy with in 15, 30 minutes and say like, this is a polished little piece of music that I can use as opposed to, you know, having to like really labor over it and having to do a bunch of takes and, or like get musicians who, who play things that I don't play. You know, like I've got all these great sample libraries. If I want strings, I've got strings and they sound good. I don't need to like, obviously I'm not going to, get a string quartet together to do a little 15 second podcast transition uh you know no disrespect to all of the string players in the world but it's just not practical right so but i i know how to use my tools well enough whether it is my mpc that i use for for sequencing or if i'm doing it in my daw uh and i know how to dial in the sounds that i like on the synthesizers that i have and I hopefully know how to arrange things well enough to make something that sounds compelling and do it do it quickly, get from A to B and not pull my hair out too much, uh, which is really different than, I guess, in a way, uh, different from if I'm like, okay, I'm making an album and there's not really a deadline for it and it's like creative, you know, in a way this is like commercial music. I still, I consider it like expressive and I try to have fun with it and make it good, but it's music that has a purpose beyond itself. It has to like fill a certain fit into a certain box. Same thing when I was doing uh, like the, the game that this Truanon series that we did, that was a little more uh, open-ended and, and kind of challenging and fun, but I was like scoring underneath the, the speech. Um, and so that music had to kind of enhance or create a vibe that matched the, the subjects being discussed, but wasn't too distracting, but was still had enough interest, but also kind of faded into the background. You know, that was really, that was a really fun challenge um, and a little bit different from normally when I'm just kind of doing a little, little segue. But um, yeah, it's its own kind of fulfilling thing. I like having those kinds of, I guess, restrictions, right? Um, I mean, when I started I was making music as Young Chomsky before True and On Podcast started, and that's like why I 
use that name for for the podcast because when it first started, uh, when the podcast started, I didn't know that it, if it was going to be successful or how long it would last. But I was like, well, I'm going to promote the music I'm making. But when I started Young Chomsky, it was like I gave myself these guidelines where I was like, I'm not singing on this anymore. I used to uh, sing on my music. And that was always the most fraught part of it for me. Uh, I would make the instrumental. And then when I go to record vocals, it was like really frustrating to do, you know, make it how I wanted it to sound. And it's still... I hear yeah, that. Yeah, <laughs> it still is. I, I Every like once a year, I decide to record something with vocals and I just like kind of lose my mind. So I was like, there's no singing. There will be voices, but all the voices will be sampled speech that I will just find from archival audio. It was like a lot of news broadcasts and stuff. I mean, these were the tracks that I was releasing before True and On. Uh, and everything else would be synthesizers and samples. So... I don't know. It depends on how you look at it, whether that's like very restrictive or, or pretty open-ended. But I found that was a way for me to be productive because then I could like, I was like, all right, recording vocals is the part that always kills me. So no more of that. But I want there to be some kind of like um, element of, of words or, or communication beyond instrumental music. So I'm gonna, and I, I thought, you know, that this would be a good way to make some kind of political statement. So I was like, I'm gonna do political music, but it's all gonna be, you know, this this archival audio. I'm gonna piece it together from like news broadcasts and commercials and political speeches and stuff like that. So that's how that that was the genesis of Young Chomsky as a musical project, and then I kind of carried that over into Truanon, and, and the music that I make for the podcast has taken on different forms. I think it's a great creative exercise, especially if you have the kinds of impulses that I do uh, to give yourself some kind of boundaries for your project. Because it could be a curse to have technology that allows you to just infinitely tweak and add stuff. Um, so yeah, I've, I've found that to be a useful way to approach things. I wanted to ask a bit more about the game. Yeah. The one thing that really jumped out at me um, at the start of the game episode, mm -hmm. you have you have actors on actually mm. performing the game. Yeah. Like I, that seemed like a, a risk that I wanted to ask you about because breaking the fourth wall in this case really works. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you thought so. Yeah. I, you know, it was a stunning moment, and it uh, the way it mocked and you know it addressed the listener um, using the you know, like what you'd heard about the game up until that point. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to ask a bit more about the decision for that. Like, was that something that you decided on your own? Was that you, Liz and Brace, talking about how to approach that episode? Or? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's interesting to moment to, to talk about. I haven't thought about that in a minute, but I, w I was very proud of how that came out, and it was a lot of fun to do. So, yeah, I mean, the initial, the concept for that, the arc of that episode definitely that was there from the beginning that the end of it was going to like have some kind of insane sounding like we wanted the listener to feel some sense of you know what it was like to be part of this right and so one way is is to enact it the way we did but we wanted to take it to the next level where like the character is going to turn on the listener and really pull you in from being an observer to being part of it so i think that concept came from Brace and then we kind of worked together to edit the script but but that was the idea and then Brace kind of trusted me to be able to make that a reality in terms of the recording and the production and I was pretty confident uh, right off the bat that I'd be able to do something cool with it and I think we kind of we went back and forth a little bit on how we were going to produce it because it's a pretty different undertaking than anything else that we do or that we've done there were 
seven actors. So I, I think maybe my first instinct was that we were going to record each person doing their lines separately, uh, like multi-track it uh, and like close mic everybody. Because that's just kind of my instinct as a producer in general. I like to, because then I have the most flexibility after the fact, right? I like to be able to edit things and choose the best take and perfect the timing. And if I record everybody individually, then I can do that. But the trade-off there is that A, it's difficult for the actors. It's hard to do a scene by yourself. It's like performing in front of a green screen or something. And then the other thing is I've, I've thought enabled, in order to put the listener into the scene the way we really wanted to do, what would be really cool is if we recorded it in the room in stereo and we did like a binaural recording. Like we didn't have the full-on fancy binaural rig but that's it's like you use two microphones positioned like a person's ears and then i think typically you have something in between them standing in for like a skull Uh, i use this like foam it's like i got it from a beauty supply shop it's like a hairdresser like a wig holder it's just a foam head but that then um acts as a baffle between the two mics and it simulates like each mic is hearing what your two ears would hear so you set that up and you position the people around it and when you listen to that with headphones it sounds like you're there in the room so that i think worked really effectively um and then for that ending part the idea was just, okay, this is going to reach this climax of insanity. So I guess what I had them do was I had the actors do a few different takes of that kind of section where it starts building. And then I gradually uh, faded in the multiple takes. So you hear them doing the lines, but then you hear like, I think it worked a lot better than if I had just used like a literal echo um, right, because it's like multiple, it's like multi-tracked, and they're not exactly tight on top of each other. If you start to hear these voices kind of like multiplying and coming at you from different different sides, and then I also had just like a like a white noise or like a wind sound kind of rising, and oh yeah, this was this is like very subtle, but it's uh, a shepherd tone is in there, which is that it's like an audio illusion that sounds like it's perpetually rising. Um, I don't know how to describe it better than that, but you look at the, there's like a Wikipedia entry for it. And I think Brace had been talking about that. He's like, oh, can we put a shepherd tone in there? It's like, sure, that makes sense. (laughs) But I think that the feeling you get from that is the feeling we wanted to have. It's this like constant building tension that never lets up. And then I also overlaid and somebody spotted this, I think maybe uh, there's one person I remember who, who commented and I was impressed. I overlaid the bit from Lost Highway, the David Lynch film where Bill Pullman's character is uh, he's a saxophonist and he he's just like on stage and he's just like freaking out and going fucking nuts on the saxophone and it just sounds like uh, chaotic and crazy so that is also overlaid just for a little bit in that um, and it and it comes to a climax and we're like all right we need this final line that'll just bring the whole thing to an end and they go we fucking hate you and then that just kind of echoes and so yeah I spent a while just really trying to get that effect to work and i think it did judging by the the responses we got i mean i saw a lot of listeners saying like this genuinely made me feel very uneasy or like this gave me a panic attack which i don't know sorry if that (laughs) happens i don't want anybody to like experience harm from listening to the podcast but i mean that's kind of cool right like i don't think most podcasts are 
giving people those that kind of really strong reaction. So yeah, I, I think the the broad strokes of it were there from the beginning. And then it was definitely a fun challenge figuring out how to kind of translate that concept into an audio reality. But I, I was super happy with how it came out. Yeah, that, that snap was just... It, fucking evocative right 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 because the actor snaps next to the microphone and it's as though you know he's kind of like that's the moment where the listener's like oh this is it's right in my ear um this is directed at me uh yeah and and that was the nice thing too about getting that microphone set up uh that recording set up to work meant that i didn't have to then by hand try to create that space right like you're like i said this is not a great sounding room but it made sense like the room that this would have happened in would have just been a regular room so it didn't matter that it sounded like a non-treated space or whatever right like i i think it it put you in the space but so yeah that's just there by default right you get these these stereo tracks that i mean if you listen on speakers i think the effect is lost but if you're listening on headphones it's uh it puts you right there and that's just kind of you get that as as part of the package so that was a fun way to record definitely different and i hope to do some more things like that. In fact, there's there's a project that I that's kind of not true and unrelated, but uh, a director that I know and we had talked about recording this uh, he uh, a play that he that he wrote and I saw performed and I said, damn, I think this would work so well as a podcast. So we'll see. Hopefully that'll happen. Uh, I gotta I gotta bug him about it. But um, I think that's yeah. I think that's a fun thing and. I don't know. I'm sure there's other people doing stuff like that. But as far as the kinds of podcasts that I listen to and the people that I know, I think it was kind of a unique thing that I, I haven't heard a lot of. I understand the initial um, Truanon theme mm-hmm. was going to be uh, the X-Files before you played the uh, uh, Twin Peaks yes. sample. I was curious if there was any specific Lynch references in the game soundtrack or if the, the theme references something other than neo-noir vibe oh yeah well i mean the theme for the game is really just the truanon theme which is the twin peaks theme transposed to the minor um so if you if you look at it or if you play it i mean it's it's the same the the rhythm's a little bit different but liz and brace and i were talking for a while um trying to conceptualize what the music would be like for the game and the first thing we were trying to figure out was was the theme and we talked about like argento scores and we were listening to like the suspiria soundtrack and i was kind of trying to get a sense of some of the the instruments and stuff like that but then um you know liz was like well but it but it should reference the existing true and on theme which we had done before when we did um the elon musk series that we did in 2021 called the lamest show on earth i did kind of a variant of the true and on theme that was kind of like a synth wavy thing and so the instrumentation was really different but yeah that that little melody i found that fun to do and like a cool exercise to kind of use that as a leitmotif throughout the series, repeating that really simple melody. But I think it was really effective, especially when we brought in the saxophone, which I was so pleased with how that worked out. But yeah, I mean, it's it's literally just flatting the the A and the D. I mean, it's initially, uh, the original one's in the key of F major, and this is in the key of F minor, and it's just reharmonized. Um, and then from that melody, I extended it a little bit and, and made that track, which is the which is the theme to the series. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's funny because 
I remember too when I put this out, there were all these comments being like, "Oh, it sounds like this song, or it sounds like that song." I was like, "That's cool. I've never heard those songs that you're talking about." Um, <laughs> it's yeah, it may be, but literally, it's just a, a variation of of the true and on theme, which like nobody seemed to pick up on. But I mean, it's it's cool. I think I feel like it's maybe a testament to the the transformative work that. I did, I guess, that I'd like the true and on theme to me, I think it's pretty clear, but I can't listen to it with fresh ears. But I, I guess I, I see those kinds of messages too, where people are like, oh, I just realized that's the Twin Peaks theme. Like, I think it's a pretty transformed, it's a pretty different take on Falling by Julie Cruz and Angela Badalamenti, which is another thing that I'm not always good at in the past. Like, sometimes I'll love a song and I'm like, oh, I want to do a cover of that. And I'll just end up kind of slavishly recreating it, which is probably not the most interesting way to do a cover but being able to like have a piece of music that you love and then do your own version of it that's like different enough from the original but also interesting in its own right like that's 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 a challenge so i was proud of the of what i landed on with the original true and on theme and then by that same token uh, this theme for the game which is you know it's like a copy of a copy of a copy right and it starts to degrade and or or, or pick up imperfections or something until you can't see the original anymore, which I think is is fun. Like the approach to scoring that versus um, the music and transitions you wrote for the main True and On or the uh, like hour and a half song you wrote for uh, April Fool's, uh, yeah. which uh, when I finally clicked in, it was joke. I was like, oh, I was actually just really enjoying it. Yeah, I appreciate that. What was it like working with the saxophone player? Like, is it, this is normally an isolated, from what I understand, I, I know you've brought on one or two collaborators in the past. Yeah. Just the whole scoring process seemed to be involved in a different manner than the podcast. Yeah, I mean, it was super fun. I'm, I'm really glad. Uh, I was so happy with how it worked out. I mean, the process was like, I, I really had no idea how, how nicely it was going to work out when I was thinking about it. I, I had started recording, and I started trying to do the music because scheduling and planning and just this entire process of doing this podcast was a challenge for everybody because it was much more involved than what we normally do and it's tough to work on something like that while you still have listeners expecting you to put out your normal content on a regular schedule and so we were kind of doing this in the background we're trying to like get ahead of it so I was trying to write music kind of in isolation before we had even finished the scripts before we had recorded the episodes so some of that I was able to do pretty well. Like I recorded a lot of stuff beforehand and I was able to use some of it. Some of the stuff I recorded beforehand, I was not able to use. It just didn't fit. I had to do something totally different. And so I, most of the music for the game I recorded after the podcast was recorded, um, which is like I wanted to avoid doing that, but that's just how it had to be. Um, but yeah, so with the saxophone, I think I, I know um, a friend of mine, Dave Fugel, He's a really talented musician, um, like a jazz guy, you know, so he's able to just kind of come in. I mean, he, he does this for a living. Um, so much more talented musician than I am in that respect, as far as like an instrumentalist, right? Like that's, I can't walk into a session and, and just play the way he can. I mean, I have some jazz background. And I, I'm like, you know, not to trash myself too much but I'm a producer I'm a composer but yeah Dave Dave is, is a really talented guy and so I knew I, I had worked with him a little bit before I guess there's some past True Nine episodes one or two where I worked with Dave where he was playing flute um, in terms of just like we made a track together and I used it on an episode 
and maybe there I think there was one where he's played he played sax uh, some time ago but I just thought it would be cool and I was like you know what the a sax would be such a cool vibe for this project like it's kind of I don't know like I just thought it might hit the right register so to speak so I had him come over and again this is before I had laid down most of these tracks so the two things I had him do were I had this idea for this kind of like ambient track which ended up being the one you you hear this one track in in every episode I guess at the end of of the game you hear it at the end and um there's kind of like two versions of it but it's on the and by the way if anybody's listening to this and um wants to hear this music I ended up releasing it uh, to Bandcamp. It is truanon.bandcamp.com. I put out not all of the music, but my favorite tracks that I did on this, which ended up being, I mean, most of them are, are short little bits, but it's 91 tracks. So a lot of music. I'll link to it in the show notes Sick. as well. Um, but yeah, so I guess it is... Is it Escape you're talking about? I think it's Escape. And then there's one other one. Maybe it's, uh, I don't know what the, is it Lost? But there are two tracks of the saxophone. But anyway, they're, they're both the same chord chord changes, just like very simple four chords. And so I hadn't really arranged it yet, but I just put down a scratch track of um, a synth playing those four chords. And I was like, look, I want this to be kind of like like a Pink Floyd vibe. If anybody knows what I'm talking about, Pink Floyd has, I think it was like in Dark Side of the Moon, there's some like really gorgeous saxophone playing. And I just gave him some directions and I was like, all right, let's just, I'm just going to hit record. And I just want you to kind of start real simple and build up to a climax and then we'll, we'll bring it back down. And so we just recorded a couple takes of that and it was really beautiful. And then I did it kind of, I built the track around his saxophone. So then I went back later and I added the bass and the shaker and the piano and the chords and some kind of uh, ambient sound effects. There's like, I think like seagulls or rain sounds going on, which I, I think worked out really well. So that's how those tracks came about. And then I said, all right, this is the melody, you know, that little six or seven note motif. And I said, let's just do a bunch of different takes of this at different tempos. And I want you to play some of them in a low register, some of them in a high register, some of them, I want you to play it straight, and then I want you to start adding uh, different variations, like do a run up at the beginning, do a run up at the end. And so we just spent a couple hours doing that. And again, this is, uh, I just had him do it to a metronome. And then after the fact, I added stuff to those. I would put strings or a vibraphone or a synth, um, not a lot, but just like accompanying that little line. And then you hear those and throughout the series. And those are the the game reprise, you know, one, two, three, all the way up to, I don't know, 15, 16, 20. There's 20 versions of, of that little little leitmotif uh, on this, in this album. So, yeah, I mean, I was just so thrilled with how it came out. And that's down to Dave being just a brilliant player and able to kind of roll with the punches. And I think we did all that in two hours. Um, and it's just the kind of thing where you hope something's going to come together and then it does. And it's just really thrilling. But... Yeah, it was basically I recorded the saxophone and then added things to uh, complement it after the fact. Um, and it, it worked out really well. Uh, Young Chomsky, I really appreciate you you know, coming on and talking about your work and music. Where can folks find you? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's always fun to talk about this stuff because I take it, I take my craft very seriously. 
Uh, and I know not everybody's listening to the podcast to hear the music or the recording or whatever, but I hope it I hope it's appreciated. And it's nice to know that that it is by some people. So yeah, you can listen to True and On at patreon.com slash true and on pod. Um, we have we also have a SoundCloud. It's the same same URL, soundcloud.com slash truenonpod. That's where the free episodes go. And then there's extra episodes that you get if you subscribe to the Patreon. Uh, the game series that we've been talking about uh, was released last fall, first for subscribers, but now is fully available for free. There's a SoundCloud playlist that has all of that. Also, Keep the Dream Alive is a series. We did that last year, and that was really kind of like a passion project for me. And that's also fully available for free on the SoundCloud. There's a, a playlist where you can listen to all that. And um, if you're a if you're a music head or a recording head, then that in particular might interest you. And then yeah, the score to to the game is uh, available at truanon.bandcamp.com. Thanks a lot. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. This was fun. This tune was made during lockdown and it was an exercise in making post-dubstep sounds. So I was getting really into old school dubstep music. So it's um, 140 BPM with halftime rhythms and it's very subby in the bass and minimal with the drums. And around that time, uh, around 2010, 2011, uh, James Blake and Mount Kimby and Fantastic Mr. Fox and a few of those artists were getting very popular and releasing music at 140 BPM, but it sounded a little bit different. It was a little bit more melodic. Um, the sounds were a little bit more snappy and um, twinkly, I guess is how I describe it. And the chords were a lot more jazzy and um, complicated, I guess, than just like a wobbling sub. So I originally made the beat and uh, I came back to it a few times and I was throwing things in. And uh, yeah, at, at some point it kind of stagnated because it was just um, an exercise for me and at that point I had moved on as a producer the sounds that I had chosen weren't really ones I would have even picked so I kind of took those ideas and applied them to new music and didn't really focus on it for too much longer I was trying to add a harp in it as well um, to make it kind of more like my own music but it was sounding very ethereal and washy just because of the very nature of the instrument. So I decided to just send that on to you just to see what you do with it. I also don't understand jazz at all and uh, making jazz in a 4-4 context is something that's really unique within that scene. I had actually met up with my friend Jackson Welshner to give me a little lesson on how to use jazz chords, but I was really struggling with it and it's just not the way I write music. It's very much kind of like throw ideas on a canvas and see what works out. Um, So with that, I have moved on to find more kind of like jazz MIDI samples, like cutting up old jazz recordings and stuff like that and applying them to 140 BPM music and other styles like footwork and drum and bass. So yeah, and then 
outport took it and uh, made it what it is now and I hope you like it. Cheers. This is Animal Party, by the way. <laughs> <laughs>